the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. people leo phillips here with another edition of this must be the gig your little backstage pass to the world of live music every week we bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the performance scene with some of the most exciting names on this gigantic big spongy globe we talk passion we talk first concerts last concerts and everything in the juicy center this week we are delighted to share a conversation with rock legend Huey Lewis. And then the curtain goes up, <laughs> and here we are, you know. Whether you've been a fan since 1983's runaway success story, Sports, or Huey Lewis in the news, The Power of Love, playing on the Back to the Future soundtrack, or even his earliest performing days with the band Clover, this chat is going to surprise and amaze you, I promise. In addition to those career highlights and others, Huey and I discuss his diagnosis of Meniere's disease, a set of symptoms which includes partial to complete hearing loss. A tragic fate for any musician, but one Huey faces with an inspiring positivity. We also chat about Huey Lewis and the news Weather, his band's first album of original music in a decade, recorded even as he faces that new reality. Be sure to stick around for the live show of the week brought to you by StubHub. But in the meantime, let us not be delayed. This is me and Huey Lewis. Enjoy. I've been um, diagnosed with a thing called Meniere's disease, which is really a syndrome based on symptoms. Okay. They don't, they don't, which means they really don't know what it is, and and they admit that. I mean, uh, the 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 great otolaryngologists will tell you the proper diagnosis for what I have is they don't know. Oh my um, gosh! But it does fluctuate, and some days I'm good, and some days I'm not so good. Today I'm bad. Uh, I've I've only been 
a six, one to ten. That's about mm-hmm. as good as I've been in two years. And I think when I'm a six, I can almost sing. But the trouble is I can't maintain a six for very long. And uh, so I haven't been able to so far. And um, mm. and today I just, you know, yesterday was pretty good, but today I'm, I'm pretty bad. So I heard you going on a golf tournament this week. Yeah, I'm at Pebble Beach for the uh, AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. This will be my 30th year here. Um, it's really a fun tournament. You know, it's a, uh, it's kind of the masters for, for amateurs. It's about as competitive as we can stand. So how long have you been playing golf? Well, I first, I started on the road, actually. We, um, uh, the first time as a band, we were staying at, um, in Dallas, uh, at the Byron Nelson right there at the four seasons. And there's a golf golf course right there. And, um, we had the day off. And I said, hey, let's let's rent clubs and play. And so I think about three or four of us did. And the bug sort of bit. And then we played a lot for on tour mm-hmm. for uh, until, we, until we got to be much older. <laughs> and now we, yes. we still play, but not as much. Not as much. So what do you get out of golf that you wouldn't out of another hobby? Well, I like that it's outdoors. Uh, I like that it's outdoors. And I love Mother Nature. And you get outside, and you can, and and nobody bothers you, you know. So if you're, if you're, if you're a celebrity, it's the best thing in the world. It's a wonderful walk. I mean, the trouble is, is it, it ends up being a very difficult game, and it can be very frustrating. You have to surrender to golf, or eventually it will um, drive you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so on the show, I'm absolutely fascinated by first experiences with live music. And I read that you joined a band called Slippery Elm in 1969. I know you'd been playing music as part of your traveling around Europe and all, but do you remember your very first concert with Slippery Elm? Well, well yes, uh, but that was just a fraternity band in college. My very first, I, I played before that. Mm-hmm, tell and, me. Uh, and so my, my I first I, I in fact there's a new song on our album called One of the Boys. Yes. Which is exactly and it's exactly my life story. My dad was a was a um a, a doctor by profession but he was a jazz drummer and pian- and piano player by uh, as a hobby and he was quite good and he had uh, a lot of professional musician friends and he would have jam sessions when I was a kid and I always loved the band and so he had a uh, growing up. He had a set of drums in the living room that he would always put me on and teach me time. You know, he'd say, "Just you got to learn time. If you have good time, everything else comes along." And so that was my earliest sort of uh, exposure to music. But my dad never liked singers because he always <laughs> he was just a big band jazz guy, and he always liked the the big band jazz, and and he always kind of you know, and most of these big bands the singer would only sing like one or two songs and then, and then they play like eight in, uh, instrumentals, you know, mm-hmm. my dad loved the instrumentals. So I naturally gravitated towards the singers a little bit and, uh, cause make make that my own. Mm-hmm. And, um, between grade school and, uh, 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 between high school and college, uh, my parents got divorced before I went to prep school and my mother had a book. My mother rented out a room to a boarder, a guy called Billy Roberts, who um, wrote Hey Joe. Mm -hmm. And he was a folk singer with guitar and harmonica that he played with a neck brace. And he had a bunch of old harmonicas and he gave me these old harmonicas. So I was playing harmonicas and going to private school. And now I I was a year young because I skipped second grade. 
and my dad I graduated at 16 years old from high school wow. and my and I was I I was accepted to Cornell University I was going to go to Cornell and my dad who had uh, said okay who, whose idea was that I go away to school to begin with said now um, he says as far as I'm concerned you all the decisions can, will be your own you you know you graduate you he felt that education really starts in, in in high school and then that's all you really need and so he says you do whatever you want he says one more thing i'm going to make you do and it'll be the last thing you're 16 what i said what he said don't go to college not <laughs> take a year off he said take a year off and bum around and bum around europe <laughs> and i so i i did i and i took a harmonica and i played my way all throughout europe and north africa and then i went back to cornell um, and, and joined Slippery Elm. And that's how, uh, and then our first gig was probably at a fraternity party somewhere. I actually don't recall the very first gig. So when you were in Europe on that harmonica, do you find that you could talk to people more easily with it? Like it allows you to be a yeah. little bit more open? Yeah, and it's very portable, right? I mean, it's real easy to carry. So and, and like a, a piano or something. And it's, <laughs> fact, my very first... My very first concert, interestingly, uh, you know, because I busked throughout Europe and North Africa. And I was in Marrakesh in North Africa for about three months. And I come out of North Africa and and, and I hitchhiked with a, with a crazy guy called Jimmy Vanderaa. I remember his name now. He's a Dutch guy. And he had like a 1925 Chevrolet pulling an Airstream trailer. And this is in the south of, of Spain. And here he comes and he picks me up and... Long story, but he drove off the drove off the side of the road into a into a ditch into a what? water. He liked to drink a little bit, old Jimmy. Oh. We stopped. We stopped at every bar on the way. We're going to Portugal on every bar on the way, and in the evening, at one point, we were on a levee, and he drove off the levee and into <gasps> the lake, and it was about three feet deep. He got out of the truck. He took his fire extinguisher which I'd never seen before, sprayed the the, the uh, distributor uh, and the motor. Apparently that dries things out and then fired the car back up and, and we drove right out of there. And off you went. <laughs> yeah. And, oh and trouble, trouble was that when we got to the Portuguese border, my passport went missing because what had happened, oh. my knapsack was in back of the trailer and, and the, the water had, had floated it out of my knapsack and into the sides of the, of the trailer. So now I couldn't go to Portugal and I had no passport. So at that point I went, I hitchhiked back to Seville and busked around town. These students saw me playing harmonica in the square and inquired what the story was. I said, well, I'm trying to make some money so I can get a new passport. I need $20 for my passport. And it was a Saturday and they don't open until Monday. They said, no problem. We'll take care of it we'll throw you a concert. And they auditioned for a guitar player. We found this guitar player. Me and this guy worked up about 10 songs and they threw us a big concert at the university. And, uh, and it was called Huey Los Blues. And um, <laughs> he put these huge concert, these po big posters up everywhere. And oh my gosh, on the night of the concert, it was sold out. And, and wow. the band that opened for us, before us, was a band called Los Nuevos Tiempos, the New Times. And they were like a 10-piece band. 
and they were tremendous. They were so good. And I thought, oh my gosh, how are we going to follow this? Me and this little, uh, me and he had an acoustic guitar and I had my harmonicas. And so I was petrified. They finished their set and our stage is, is, they pushed a little pod right out into the middle of the audience from the stage because there's only two of us and two chairs and two microphones. And we go out there and we sit out right in the middle of the audience. And I mean, you could hear a pin drop. It was deathly quiet. And we start playing. And we, I think we played uh, uh, like a Lightning Hopkins tune or some song we're playing. And I mean, it is so quiet. I'm thinking to myself as we're playing, we are bombing. Right. We are, we're dying a death. Yeah. And at the end of the song, from complete quiet, from complete silence to eruption of huge applause, standing ovations, and they thought we were fantastic. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I, I think I'm going to try and do this. <laughs> so before that, had you ever thought about getting up on stage and, and performing in front of people? I, I really hadn't. I, I, I'm trying to think if I'd ever... I think I might have sat in with a couple people on harmonica in back here in, Marin, in in California, but I hadn't really done anything professionally at all. So, what did that experience teach you? It, well, it taught me that 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 people enjoyed this, and uh, that, <laughs> and I'm and I could and I might be able to do this for a living. The bell went off. I said, "Wow!" And it's kind of a funny story because not only were, was everybody very appreciative, but a lot of the People, club owners in town came by and said, man, that was great. And gave me their card. Come, come play my club and come do this. And, 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 and my, my guitar player friend, Michael, I said to Michael, I said, Hey man, we got a gig. We can stay here for a couple of weeks and do a few gigs. <laughs> make some money. So we, we, we accepted a gig for the following Friday night and we hung around to the Friday night and it was a club that we were going to play. And now this club, same thing, another band opens and they also are tremendous. And they're not a, they're a big 10 piece dance band. And now we go on in this little club and the atmosphere was different. It wasn't, it was kind of a noisy club and we're an acoustic act. And by now my harmonicas are getting a little bit worn <laughs> and a little out of tune. You know, yeah. And he's, and and Michael's broken a string, and oh, he's had to replace shit. it with a nylon string because you can't find steel strings in Spain. And so now we play this gig, and you know what? And we're not very good, and it's a noisy club. And oh my gosh, we bombed. Oh, we no. were terrible. <laughs> and that was that was the second gig I ever did. <laughs> so what year was this? Let's see. This would be 1967. 1967. Okay. Yeah, 1967. I was 17 years old. Wow. Well, you were a ballsy 17-year-old, I got to say. Yeah, well, I'd been on my own since, I, you know, I'd been away to prep school. Uh, my my mother was quite a bohemian. She was a, she was like one of the very first hippies. And my, my dad, my parents split up, and my father thought it wasn't a good environment for her. She was, my mom was, uh, she loved psychedelics. She was took LSD all the time and she was hanging out, you know, friends with the grateful dead and all. And my dad thought we got to get this kid out of here. So he convinced me to go away to private school when I was 12 years old. I mean, I, I, I turned 12 years old in June of 1963 and in, I'm sorry, 
I graduated eighth grade in June of 1963. In July of 63, I turned 13. And then in uh, August, I went away to school. So you took on the stage name Huey Lewis in 1971 while playing in Clover. Right. But what inspired the name change? When I was with Clover, we were in England, and I got a lot of session work, mm -hmm. uh, or not a lot, but some, to play harmonica on other people's records, and they wanted to credit me, and I didn't have a green card. And so <laughs> I, um, I, I changed my name. Everybody was changing their name anyway. This was the punk thing. And so my nickname for always had always been Huey Louie, Louie, and then Lewis. Mm -hmm. my, my sort of first girlfriend's father always called me Lewis. So I just called myself Huey Lewis. Oh, okay. And then obviously Clover included John McPhee. Right. Who would go on to play with the Doobie Brothers. And they served as Elvis Costello's backing band. So you were surrounded by really amazing musicians at the time. What did you learn from them? Well, everything. Everything. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, lots of stuff. And, 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 and again, the thing about Britain that was so neat was the punk thing uh, had had just sort of exploded. And, you know, I had joined Clover probably five or six years previous, and we had spent all of our time trying to sort of market ourselves uh, be a, uh, attract to attract the record companies, uh, be what the record companies told us we should be, and uh, which was a long cry from what I was. I wasn't a... Uh, a rock guy much i'm a rhythm and blues guy I come from rhythm and blues and and that's the stuff i liked but gosh i wanted to make a living too you know so we spent clover we tried to make kind of big arena records we made uh, records with mutt langer that were aimed at the american market and all this but when the punks hit for me it was so liberating because mm -hmm. i saw for the first time guys who could sing uh you know who had didn't have radio friendly voices like mine and and, uh, and when they were sort of thumbing their nose at the music establishment and saying hey we don't care we're going to do our own tunes our own way now I, I i didn't i didn't appreciate the music necessarily but i love their stance and i vowed that if clover broke up that's what i'd do i'd go i'd go home find my favorite musicians be an r&b based band and just play the club play my local club and and i wouldn't care about making it i just that would be making it and that's what i did and that's when things started to happen for us so do you feel like when you relinquish creative control in a sense do you allow yourself to kind of get out of your own way oh no question i mean you know you you need a story to tell you know a storyteller needs a story to tell and if i could figure out how to conjure them up i would do it all the time but but they but good songs or good stories just happen. They the, the, it's the muse or something. And once you have a great b the bones of a great story or a song, the rest is just so creative and so much fun. You know, and it just carries you with it. If it if it, it a song will write itself, and then it will tell you how it wants to be produced and how and what instruments it wants to. I mean. And and that's a wonderful thing. But I really think the inspiration, the song, or or the story is a gift. I love that. I really resonate with that, especially for artists who struggle with finding that muse. Yeah, I mean, 
the thing to do, the thing you can do as a writer is be receptive. You know, we, I think it's important to be receptive and that means to be open and to be, and that means to be thinking about uh, creative things, thinking about writing and being open to the muse, if you will, being, you know, leaving the door open as it were. But, but you know, there's no, if you decide, Hey, I'm going to go write a song right now, you know, (laughs) good luck. It just doesn't happen that way. (laughs) So when is the best time for you to open the door for the muse to come in? Yeah, I wish I knew. The the easy answer is all of the above, but but I think sometimes when you when you when you when you're in bed, you know, like you're thinking in bed, you either before you go to sleep or when you first wake up in the morning, seems like sometimes you think about songs or creative stuff and stuff stuff just can come into your head, you know. So when you started discovering other artists and were liberated by that punk movement, did you start to think of music a little bit differently than when you were a kid? Right. I mean, when you work on music, you think, you know, you've got to split it up into its little into all of its little parts and 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 you know, when we make records and so on, but I I haven't lost the thrill of just hearing a, a great song, you know. So I, I think I think I'm still a fan in in the ways I always was. Mm. I, my my only problem now is that I can't hear. Mm. But uh, but even as of two years ago, I'm still a big music fan. You know, I can still put on my favorite things, and just I mean, I just love that. You know, I just love music. Is such a wonderful thing. It's such a wonderful healing thing. The podcast. I love that we commit to saying it in different accents every every year, every month, I, every, I, every day. Every time I what? think, should Where I say podcast? Podcast. Pause the podcast. It's time to step away. <laughs> really, it is time to step away just momentarily from the conversation with Huey Lewis to share a little something Engineer Adam and I like to call the, the live show of the week. week. What do we do every week? Every single week, we highlight one of the most exciting events that we could find out there in the world, and we share it with you, our pod people, to go to these shows. So this week, other than calling you pod people incessantly, we are highlighting a performance from the one and only Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill. Lauren. At the Wellmont Theater in Montclair, New Jersey, on Friday, February 14th, the Day of Love. Love Day. And we here at TMBTG Studios are Lauren Hill fanatics. It was one of my first CDs, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I can see it. It's all stained it's from my tears on your heart. and tea. From my tears and tea. And uh, we can vouch for her mesmerizing live performances. So this is one of those bucket list performers that you, unfortunately, uh, there is no choice left in the matter. You cannot miss it. You are going to this concert. It's a law. It is now illegal not to go to that concert. (laughs) And if you want to not go to jail (laughs) and get in on the excitement of that show or any other show, really... You can head to StubHub via cosradio.lv slash StubHub and find the best selection of tickets to all of the hottest shows. One more time, that's cosradio.lv slash StubHub. Mm-hmm. And while we're talking about important things to Ooh. keep you out of jail on the internet. <laughs> Yale. <laughs> of course. To keep you, you out of Yale. You have to head to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this Google podcast Play. right this moment. Google Spotify. Play. Spotify. All these things. All these things. Head over to that app. Subscribe, rate, review, 
make it five stars tell a friend tell a friend telephone it's, it's a all friend. important stuff it means a lot to us and the reason why it means a lot is because there is no way that we can be found in the sea of creatures that is Pod- podcasts <laughs> podcasts because if you don't review or rate us then nothing no alarm gets set off no alarm is triggered and then the algorithm's like well no one's there so we're going to switch the lights off ah. we do not want to be in the dark we want to have the lights on so we can see around this hellhole yeah i've stubbed my two my toes <laughs> i've stubbed my toes too many times i've toos my stubs too many tubs <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to say you stub-hubbed your toes? I've stub-hubbed my two's toes. <laughs> oh, my God. That was like a neck cackle. Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Let us return. I'm sorry to segue into that now, but we need to, we need to get back. Uh, me and Huey Lewis. Enjoy. What song would you share if you really wanted somebody to know you? Like not your the genre of music that you like, but really know you, like your head and your heart. Wow, that's a, that's an interesting question. That's a very interesting question. I mean, I probably, I mean, it's easy to say on our on our new album. There's a song called "While We're Young," mm-hmm. which is kind of a, a philosophically, uh, you know, it's about it's a it's a it's a song about growing older and. And and that sort of thing. So I suppose that's mo- the most sort of autobiographical mm-hmm. thing I have. But but I but in terms of 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 the, my appreciation for music, I, it would be a jazz tune. It would be it probably be either Louis Armstrong or Count Basie or something like that. Some of the early '30s stuff, or 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 Ella Fitzgerald with the Chick Webb band. I mean mm. that that just my hair stands up when Unparalleled, I listen to that stuff. Unparalleled, totally. So yeah, totally. Yeah. So I was really surprised to learn that not only did you play harmonica on Thin Lizzy's 1978 album Live and Dangerous, but that Scott and Phil were a part of encouraging you to consider taking a lead role as a singer in a band. Is that right? Yeah. Philip was, um, you know, a special guy. And, and we, uh, Clover supported Thin Lizzy on their uh, Johnny the Fox tour. And um, uh, it was a funny story because on a first, we were told, you know, don't expect a uh, a sound check because, you know, you just don't get sound checks uh, as an opening act mm-hmm. until, you know, middle of the tour or something. Um, uh, and that's just the way it is in England. Tough. Yeah, don't worry about it. And we were billed as support. Just so, <laughs> because, in other words, we were on, it was Thin Lizzy plus support. And so... Where the, there was a curtain down on our very first show, I think it was in Oxford or somewhere, and there's a curtain down, and outside the fans are. I mean, it seems like there were tons of people, but there weren't. There probably weren't that many. I mean, it's probably probably you know two thousand people or something. But outside, and we're behind the curtain trying hastily to get our amplifiers on and get everything working because we haven't had a sound check. And out front, they're going. <laughs> and this and then the curtain goes up and here we are you know and the guy goes and the announcer goes 
well, Finn Lizzie will be right out. And the place goes nuts. He goes, but first, here's Clover. Yeah. <laughs> and now they go, boo. Oh. And they start throwing things. And so we played our first show. And, I mean, we barely got through the, all the songs. I don't even know. We probably cut a couple songs. Uh, and then, but when it was over, we walked off the stage. The first guy waiting in the wings of the stage was Philip Lennett. And he said, hey, have you got a, have you got a second? I said, yeah. He says, and so he took me into his dressing room and he started to tell me about, you know, he started to critique our set and, and give me pointers and tips and just became like my bigger brother, you know, and then eventually uh, dressed me out of his closet and, and, uh, and uh, flew me to the Bahamas where I played on all the solo records and, Philip was a real mentor, and uh, he was a sweet, generous, wonderful guy, and nobody could touch him on stage. He was just fantastic. That's such a great story. Do you remember what kind of tips or any advice he gave you for your performance? Yeah, well, he wanted me to sing more. I didn't sing a lot in Clover. Okay. I sang one song, and, and he he said, you know, you should sing more songs. And then uh, and he also said, you know, you got to give him a bit of stick. You get, you need to be a little more aggressive. He says, these kids are coming off of Slade. And, and he, he, he really knew his fans, you know. He was, Philip was uh, super smart. And, uh, and, he, and he was, he, was he, he cared, you know. He was a big hearted guy. And he really cared not just about his friends, and, but he cared about his audience. And he knew, he really knew them. He felt like he knew them. And he, most of what he did is he explained to me about his audience and what they would like. And it was a, it was really, really a sweet thing. And it's such a rare experience to get tips from somebody and then have the opportunity to turn around and watch them perform. And not, not only to watch them play, but also to watch how Philip ran the show. You know, I saw them because the Johnny Fox tour, the previous tour was jailbreak tour and they were on top of the world. And Johnny the Fox was kind of, kind of the same thing again. So the critics didn't receive it all that well. And, and, and a couple, and in those days, the, 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 the music magazines, Melody Maker, Sounds, and uh, New Musical Express pretty much ran the show. That's how, that's how you broke. And I remember one show, it was a sound check, and I'm just on the wings of the stage watching Thin Lizzy sound check, and, I, and, I, and somebody hands me the new New Musical Express, which I read, and there's a complete, fan of Thin Lizzy and their show. It's a complete terrible review. And I'm holding on to it and just reading it like that. And Philip sees me mm. and he comes over uh, is on the side of the stage. This is in the afternoon. And he comes over and he says, what have you got? Let me see it. And he, he grabs the paper from me and it's his review that I didn't want to show him. Oh God! And he reads through the, he reads through this whole terrible review without an expressionless then he hands the paper back to me, turns around and goes, all right, Buzz, let's go. John launches into the next song. <laughs> no emotion, no nothing. I thought, that's good. I got to remember that. <laughs> that could happen to me. And have you remembered that? Has it ever happened to you? I have. And I've also remembered Ray. I also remembered from Ray Charles. You know, because we, we existed on great reviews in the beginning because we didn't have any success. So we had all these great reviews and, 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 but then I read, then I read a, a, um, 
a review of Ray Charles. And, and it was, um, it was kind of a, oh, I'm sorry. It was a, it was an interview with Ray Charles and they asked him about the critics and all this crazy. He says, I never read them. I don't read anything. He said, I'm oh, cause he's blind, but he doesn't have anybody read them for him. And I thought really that, cause I, here I am, I'm kid. I'm reading the critics like crazy because we're just starting out and that's all we got. We only have an audience of about 28 people, but we got these critics that are saying we're, we're, we're going to be the next big thing, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm living and dying by the, by the critics. And here's Ray Charles, my hero says, I don't even read them period. <laughs> and, and, and they say, why not? And they said, why not? He says, cause if you believe the good ones, you got to believe the bad ones. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, very good. And then, so I kind of quit reading them too. So, what do you think a cultural critic is needed for now? Well, a lot. I, I think critics are very important, to be honest. I mean, when the when the when the band sings, "I want candy," we got somebody's got to tell them that's, "Hey, Bo Diddley," you know. <laughs> I mean, there's there's stuff, you know. So, you get you, we we need critics. There's no question about it. But having said that. Because the pop, the popular thing gets, you know, everybody's got their own agendas, you know, so it's, it's, it's very polarized, just like the country is. <laughs> so the debut album from Huey Lewis and the News came in 1980. How did it feel to first start seeing your adopted name on a record cover like that? Well, we originally called American Express, which I thought was kind of <laughs> appropriate. I thought that's kind of what we sounded like, American <laughs> Express. That's what I called the band. Um, and then our manager said, we need to make it Huey Lewis and American Express because we got to put the focus on you because you're the singer and blah, blah, blah. And I said, and we didn't care. Band said, okay, sure, whatever, you know. So, that, so then we were Huey Lewis and American Express. And then on the eve of the release of our first record, 24 Hours to Go, Literally before the, uh, before the deadline for our, the the record company says you got to change your name. Why? They were afraid that American Express would sue us. Nobody had ever done any corporate tie-ins or any of that stuff. Of course, what we now know, it could have been a blessing. You know, yes. it could have made some money. But but <laughs> um, um, so we changed our name to the News. Uh, and uh, you know, it was it was it was something to see. Oh my gosh, here we go. But I. I, I still had my eye on the ball. I, you know, I'd been, I'd been with Clover and we'd, I'd watched Elvis Costello and I'd watched Van and I knew that just getting a record contract, uh, wasn't, wasn't the end all be all because it was 1980 and in 1980 or actually it was 78 when we got signed, 78, 79, but radio was king. And so if you're going to, if you were going to exist, you needed a hit single. And that's, uh, that, that, that was, so I wasn't patting myself on the back. I was just thinking, good, we're off to a good start. By the release of sports in 1983, you had started selling records and getting airplay, but that album is an absolute legendary release. Were you ready for all of that attention that it brought? Yeah. Well, I mean, sports was, was interesting because, um, you know, again, if you think back, uh, to, uh, sports was recorded in 82 uh, and uh, we knew we needed a hit single. I mean, radio was king. Even MTV, which had just started, was playing their their playlist 
exactly mirrored radio and records' playlist. Radio was king. CHR, contemporary hit radio, was the format. Um, FM radio, which had started in the 60s as an alternative to top 40 radio, um, by now was programmed as well. So uh, you needed a hit single. And so we insisted on producing sports ourselves because we wanted to make those decisions ourselves, uh, the commercial decisions. We knew we'd have to live with them forever, so we, we didn't want it to be cringeworthy, as it were. And so um, uh, we produced sports ourselves, and we aimed every track right at radio, which was the hardest thing for our group because my voice is not was not heretofore recognized as radio-friendly, a baritone, a kind of a hoarse baritone. And um, we aimed if you, uh, every track right at radio. We knew we needed a hit. We didn't know we were going to have six of them. Uh, but um, and that, and now when I think back, when I listen back to sports, I realize that it is a record of its time in that it's a collection of singles. Right. So what was the song on sports that was the most difficult then to make radio friendly? Well, what a new drug. What a new drug was. Yeah. We wrote, you know, I had the idea and then we wrote it we, oh, about two different versions. Uh, that didn't happen and then uh, and uh we just couldn't figure it out i just couldn't get it right and then finally chris called me one morning as i remember uh, first of all i remember having the idea for the song on the way to my publisher's house uh, <laughs> as we had a business meeting and on the way uh in the morning I, as i walked in the door i said do you have a pen and pencil he said sure and he, uh, a pen and paper and boom, yeah. And I went, and I wrote the whole song down. I had the, the lyric down. And now we tried to write the song, and we came up with two or three different versions, none of which worked, until one day Chris called me and said, I think I got it. And he came over to my house, and we demoed it up, and it just it just clicked. But, you know, it's it's funny because One New Drug is a very simple song. It's basically a blues tune. But the simplest songs are the ones that take the larger, the longest sometimes because they're they're they have to be perfectly right feel um uh uh tempo um all the little things because there's not a lot of chords so um i I'd say the biggest challenge was one a new drug and which one surprised you when it did so well i I was surprised one a new drug was a hit <laughs> I didn't think that really? was going to be a hit come on i mean I thought if if this is it if this is it was 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 sure. going to be you know, heart and soul was a single. If this is it was was a single. Heart of rock and roll even maybe, but one a new drug. I just didn't. But you know, who knew? Pause the podcast. Pause the podcast. Are you looking at a calendar full of great events but struggling to find tickets? StubHub's got gotcha. you. Whatever your favorite band, team, or venue, StubHub is here to save the day with the best tickets for any budget. Whether you're looking for a seat at a Broadway show, tickets to the summer's big arena tour, or a night of cheering on your hometown team, StubHub has the seats you're looking for at the price you want to pay. Head to cosradio.lv StubHub or their user-friendly app to find tickets that are 100% guaranteed by FanProtect. StubHub's never sold out with the most shows, the most tickets, and the most fans. So head on over to cosradio.lv/stubhub or the StubHub app. 
the best tickets to the best experiences in music, sports, and theater. That's cosradio.lv slash StubHub. And in 1985, The Power of Love was featured in the amazing movie Back to the Future. And you even appear in the film as a judge for the Battle of the Bands tryouts. Did you ever dream of acting in a film? Was that, what was that experience like? Yeah, no, actually, actually, I like to act. I, I, I actually have thespian aspirations, if you want to know. Oh. I just never... But I've never, never done much because you know I've been, we've been singing all my life, and 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 now I'm a singer, and so I don't get offered great actors' roles anyway because they go to actors, and they nobody thinks of me as an actor, you know. But but I, I do, I do actually enjoy it, and the way it happened in Back to the Future, although that's that was just a kind of a face check, is the. Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg, Bob Zemeckis, and Bob Gale mm-hmm. came to me and said, uh, how would you like to write a song? Oh, they, they put it this way. They said, we've just written a, um, a movie, uh, and their lead character, Marty McFly, his favorite car- uh, band would be Huey Lewis and the News. How would you like to write a song for, for, uh, for the film? And I thought, wow, flattered, but I, I don't know how to write for film necessarily. Uh, nor do I fancy writing a song called Back to the Future. And they said, no, no, we don't care. It, it, you can, you, it, we just want to hear you listen to the new song. I said, great. We'll send you the, we'll, we'll, we'll send you the next one, uh, next one we write. And, uh, and that was Power Love. But did you connect with any of the actors? What was the spirit on set? Sure. Uh, well, they, they thought it would be, um, you know, so now, now Zemeckis says, Hey, we thought it'd be really cool if you're in it somehow. I said, well, I, I don't need to be in it. I, I, I didn't get that. And then I finally agreed to do it if they would disguise me and, and not credit me and just make it a little cameo. And they said, okay, and that's what we did. And uh, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, we, we get together now every five years or so because the, the movie just keeps growing. And, and then there's these revivals and, and we kind of get together and reminisce. And, and, and Bob's really funny about it. He says, you know, everybody says, boy, that must've been a great time doing that. And he reminds us all that we had to shoot that thing at night because or they had to shoot it at night. I, I shot my bed at night as well, but because Michael J. Fox was on what three's company or something during the day. And so they had to shoot him at night. So the whole thing was shot night for day and crazily done, you know, back in the day. And, um, and it was, you know, no no one had any idea that it was going to be such a big picture. But why didn't you want to be credited? Yeah, I thought it would just be kind of a nice in-joke. I mean, there's no okay. act. I only had one line. I only had one line. So not as if, it's, not as if I, there was any acting required, you know, just the one line. So I know that Christopher Lloyd was also in the music video. Yeah. So do you have any fun stories from that recording? He came and did that after they shot us first. Mm-hmm. And they shot it, and that was like at three in the morning or something. We we were done at one in the morning, and we left. And then I think they showed up. So, but I, I I've seen Chris, and I've seen um, uh, Michael uh, also, and I've seen uh, Mary Steenburgen also, and because we have these reunions every so often, like the twenty five year reunion, the thirty, 
the 35 <laughs> and we all do the check and we do the morning chat shows and we get to reminisce and so yeah we see each other that's amazing. Also, in 1985, you performed in the We Are The World single. What was it like to be in a room with all of those incredible people, that, that huge group of legendary people? Well, it was amazing. I mean, you, you know, you don't get to meet those people in a, in a, in a lifetime, let alone one night, mm. and, and, and let alone be just get to talk to them all that way. So it was it was one of those amazing once in a lifetime experiences. I'll never forget. And it was, uh, you know, it was really fun. And we, and, and, and there's a certain bond that still exists, I think, between all the participants. What did you feel when you were first asked to contribute to the song? Oh, I was flattered. I was flattered. I mean, uh, you know, you loved it. It was flattered. It was really fun and nerve wracking is because I sang a line. I actually got Prince's line because Prince didn't show up. What? And, and so, and, and so Quincy said, get Huey in here. And he sent for me and I came in and he goes, smelly. You know, uh, my, uh, Quincy used to call Michael Jackson smelly. Everybody, that was his nickname smelly. Cause he was so clean. Yeah. They called him smelly and, uh, smelly get in here. And, and Huey sing, sing Huey the line. And he sings me, just believe there's no way we can fall. And then I sing it. He goes, great, you got it. Well, and then, then, then I had to sing it. And then, then, you know, then I had, then he says, can we sing a harmony part with, with, uh, with, uh, uh, Kim Carnes? Well, shit, that's a, that's an artistic consideration. Well, I just said a bad word, didn't I, on your podcast? Oh, no. I just said a bad I word. I swear all the time. You're totally <laughs> welcome here. Okay. <laughs> But all right. Well, anyway, I was nervous, 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 so nervous. Yeah. But it was really a great, great evening. Great evening. Did you get the chance to chat to anybody? What was the feeling like in that room? Yeah, yeah. I got to talk to Paul Simon a lot. Talked to Bruce Springsteen a lot. Oh we had a bunch God. of jokes. Bruce and I. I mean, I still feel we still feel friend. You know, there's there's like I say, there's there's a little bond there that exists between those of us. It was such an incredible night, you know. And Lionel, I see Lionel now and again. Same thing. Yeah. So after Back to the Future, you've acted intermittently, including co-starring in 2000's duets, which is just a lovely performance. How did your appearance in the film come about, and how did you enjoy working closely with Gwyneth Paltrow? I loved it. She's, uh, needless to say, extremely talented. And, you know, as I said, she's got skills. But, yeah, her dad directed the picture, and he just... Uh, he, had, he took a meeting with me and said, uh, wow, I think you can do it, but I got to make you read. I said, go, let's read. So we read for it and I got the part. Uh, and then um, um, uh, they said the song in, in, the, in the script was not cruising. It was a different song. And they said that Gwyneth would be choosing the song. I said, understandably. Mm -hmm. And so then they sent me the song. They said, Gwyneth's chosen Smokey Robinson's cruise. And I said, great. I, I couldn't remember it. I didn't know it. I know all the Smokey Robinson earlier ones, but I didn't know cruising. So I got it and I listened to it and I said, Oh yeah. Okay. I got it. Uh, what key? Uh, I said, Oh, it, it was obviously in her key. So I, so they come back and said, I said, I got it. Yeah, we can do it. We should get around the piano and find a key and do it. And he goes, Oh no, we already cut it. <laughs> I said, really? Yeah. I said, what key did you cut it in? He says, the original key. I said, oh, okay. So that's real high. 
So I figured out that she, so I, I figured out a little harmony part and, and then we cut that song. Larry Klein produced it and did a great job. And, um, and then, and we cut the song like six months before we shot the movie. And then we did the movie in, in Canada. And it was just, it was, a, it was really a pleasure working with Gwyneth cause she's so professional, you know, and so good. It was really fun. And there was some, some acting required, some real acting required there too. <laughs> yeah. Did you go for lessons? How did you prepare? You know, I, I done, I, I done, uh, some, uh, I, I did a picture called shortcuts with Bob Altman, with Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this was previous, you know, long time ago. And, and we do, one of our shoots was a location up in Bakersfield on the Kern river. And it's about a three and a half hour drive from where, where Santa Monica. And, uh, he said, Huey wants you to come with me, which I did. So I rode with, with Bob and he drove and he gave me a tutorial on the whole way on acting. And he said, look, he said, read the script every single day and note till you know the script cold and you know, everybody's lines. You can't just know yours is you got to react. Acting is reacting. So when somebody else says a line, you got to react to that line. You have to practice how you're going to react to that line because you've heard it before. You got to pretend like you're going to hear it for the first time. So when you know the script cold, create a backstory for your guy, figure out who he is, find your character, just find him. And when you find him, make up stuff about him. You know what he eats, what he, but when you got your character, then don't listen to anybody. <laughs> how different is performing on stage versus acting? You know, acting is interesting. There's film acting. There's TV acting, and then there's stage acting. And those three things are completely different. And the film acting is real small because the lens is real close. So you can be real quiet and real small if you want, if, 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 depending on you got to know what the frame is and so on. Stage acting, you need to be big. You need to, come, you need to be as big as the room. You need to take care of the room, you know. So it's, it's very interesting. And, uh, but but, but mu- music uh, live performance of music is, is, is different again, because there is no script. You don't need to be any one place. You, it's a constant improvisation, if you will, ad living. And, and you break that, that third wall all the time, or is it the fourth wall? I don't know which, whichever wall it is, because you, <laughs> You're can, just you can run right yeah. out there. You can run yes. right out there. Yeah. <laughs> You break some. You break walls. Break walls, <laughs> Huey Lewis. Breaking walls. Do you remember a performance that sticks out to you where everything went completely right? That's interesting. That's so. That's such a good question too. I think I'm going to say, I remember a gig. It was December 30 because it was the day before New Year's Eve mm-hmm. at the Belly Up in in Aspen, Colorado. Wow. Is that right? I think I think so. Uh, or it might have been Sun Valley. It's a ski resort, the belly up. And it was just, a, it was a mess. I felt like, you know, the thing about music that's so much fun is that when it's good, when if, and you do it, and when you play it as a kind of a team sport like we do, um, it carries you with it at a certain point. And when you're really in the pocket, uh, it's, 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 it's just, it's a, like a wave that you ride. And there's no effort whatsoever. The song begins to sing itself and play itself, and you just you're long for the ride. And that's uh, that when that and, and that happens, 
you know, almost every gig, but it doesn't happen. Um, I mean, it does. It happens every gig, but not all the time. You know, the great gigs, it happens most of the time. Mm -hmm. Some gigs, it happens seldom. But that's what we try to do, get in the pocket. And uh, and that's just, that's the most, that's the best feeling, you know, when you're when the song is really just, you're just not thinking and you're not, you're just riding. You're just riding the wave. It's just a great, great feeling. I'm sure you've had a lot of interesting interactions with fans, but is there anyone that stands out? Oh, we've had a zillion. Oh, we, <laughs> we our fans have been, you know, we've searched this so we've been around so long. We have fans that have seen hundreds of performances who become friends, you know, become uh, really good friends. So we, we just say, oh, hi, how are you? I mean, there's probably hardcore there's well, there's lots of them probably 50 you know who've seen us over a hundred times each wow i was completely shocked when the news broke of your diagnosis of meniere's disease when did that come about yeah no i was diagnosed with meniere's uh a long time ago i, I lost my right ear 30 years ago mm. um i lost 80 percent of it and it's down to 20 percent and now Unfortunately, I lost my left ear in 2018, January 27th, and um, and it still fluctuates on the left side, but it's uh, uh, you know it's 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 not good, and, and even when it's when it's as good as it can be, I, when it's as good as it can be, I think I can sing maybe, but I don't know that because I, it never stabilizes long enough for me to book a rehearsal. I can't can't get it stabilized, so. I'm just waiting. I'm hoping it'll stabilize, normalize, and then stabilize. So you recently released your first new song. What kind of self-care are you doing to prepare for the full album? Well, I'm, I'm looking after my health like crazy. I mean, uh, you know, I have regular exercise. I, I do, I'm on several different protocols um, that are too complicated to explain, but there's, a, there's a, a Harvard Medical School doctor called David Sinclair who's, who's uh, promoted this new uh protocol kind of anti-aging protocol that i'm that i'm i'm part of a study group at ucla from dr heisinga uh i'm uh you know i take a diuretic every day i'm trying all kinds of different stuff so when you first lost hearing in your left ear did your relationship with music completely shift yeah it, it, it ended i cannot listen to music Aww. i can't hear music at all I have, I literally haven't listened to music in two years. It's a, it, it, I can't, I can listen to it. I can't tell you what, what key it's in. I can't hear a pitch. It's horrible. Why is this album so important for you right now? Well, because these, we love these songs and we really think it's among our best work. And I want to, I want to give it a nice send off, you know, and unless you, and you know, today with all that's going on in the world, you, you know, you really gotta, you gotta promote these things or they I get know. lost. Yes. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give these songs the best send-off I can. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I know that it's probably really devastating to not be able to communicate in the way that you want to. So I really, really appreciate your patience. Thank you, Lior. Thank you. Very sweet. Very sweet. Oh, and lastly, tell me a little bit about that documentary that you're shooting. The, uh, you know, we have a musical uh, mm -hmm. uh, the heart of rock and roll, which we're 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 hopefully going to bring to Broadway next season. Uh, I'm I'm fairly confident that we will. It's it's quite good. We put it up in San Diego for 
six weeks and it was a big success. It's, it's really good. I think and it's really, really kind of fun, very exciting, but the producer of our co-producer of that musical is a guy called Tyler Mitchell. And he called me one day and said, you know, uh, there's a guy called a filmmaker called Kurt Kenny who wants to, um, uh, who wants to do a documentary on you. And, and, and he's a really great guy. And I, and I, I said, well, I don't know about that. He said, you know, just take the meeting. I said, sure. So we had lunch with him and I, he's a, a wonderful guy and, and super smart and, a really a film student at USC. And so he said, uh, I, you know, I really, I'm a, he's a big fan. He grew up in the Bay area. And, and, uh, uh, so he said, uh, yeah, I'd like to really, uh, he, he, and he's, he's already done a couple of award-winning documentaries. I said, well, how, how would it work? He says, let me just follow you around for a couple of days and then I'll put a sizzle reel together and see if, see if anybody is interested. And he, he that's what he did. And now, uh, the sizzle people really love the sizzle reel and they're getting, and they're starting, you know, they're starting to sell it. And it's kind of exciting really. It's uh, although it wasn't my idea and he's, he's now shadowing me everywhere. I've, I've, I figured the only way I can get rid of the guy, uh, the only way I can get, the only way I can get rid of the camera is to feed him. Yeah. So that's what I do. I cook and I feed him is the only way he put the camera down. <laughs> is he around you this week? Like right now? He's not, not, no, he's coming down tomorrow. He's due tomorrow. So what is your favorite part about being shadowed by someone making a documentary about your life? What's my favorite part? Yes. Well, there's not a lot of favorite part to it, really. <laughs> it's just, he, but he's, he's such a decent fellow and such an artist that I feel like, if, you know, I, I feel fortunate that he's, that he's doing this for me. So I, I guess that's probably why I'm so, uh, so compliant. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble. We'd like to thank Dean Berger and Daniel Brater for additional music, as well as the Consequence Podcast Network. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TMBTGPod. And generally, just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again, and I miss you already. Everyone's trying to get you to buy more stuff. Instead, head to StubHub so you can celebrate the season at a game or show. Take the whole family to the ballet, bang on the glass at a hockey game, or sing along with your favorite artist at a concert. StubHub has the best selection of seats for all the events you want to experience with your loved ones. And every ticket is 100% guaranteed. Get to StubHub.com or their user-friendly app today. StubHub. S-T-U-B-H-U-B. Be there. Consequence Podcast Network.